Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know. But I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-on-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you could save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. All right, everyone. It's Wednesday, February 9th. Welcome back to the Hustle Daily Show. I'm your host, Zachary Crockett, and I'm sitting here with the world's biggest fan of bodegas, Rob Litterst. What's going on, Zach? That is an actual fact. I love bodegas. It's all that overpriced wine. It's uh, it's clouding your, your judgment. Oh, I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, we've got a really special guest today. She's a former internationally ranked chess player, a one-time nomad, and she just so happens to run our trends team here at The Hustle. Steph Smith, good to have you. Hey, guys. Great to be here. I didn't know you were a world-renowned chess player. I try not to mention it these days because people get really excited, but this is back <laughs> when I was like nine years old. This is a long okay, time Okay, okay. But that's like, that's like even more impressive. Yeah, now everybody's like, Steph, were you like the inspiration for Queen's Gambit? <laughs> you know what's funny is when I used to play chess, I was on the Canadian national team. And one of my friends on that team, Alexandra Botez, is now a popular chess streamer. I think she has like her and her sister, a million plus followers on, on Twitch. What? And people have compared her. I've seen articles where people compare her to the Queen's Gambit. Wow. That's amazing. Did you ever take her down? In competition? I mean, we definitely played. The, the funny thing about chess is people think that, yes, like a, a 2000 player will absolutely beat a 1200 player, but there's still a lot of room to lose to a player that's worse than you or better than you. Hmm. And so we've definitely played a ton of games and probably won and lost both sides. So if you look at like a percentage of upsets, like <laughs> underdog upsets, like chess would rank pretty high. Not high in the sense that like if you were to compare it to poker, right, there's like no luck in chess. Right. Yeah. Poker is is a ton of luck. Chess, almost no luck. But there still is room for like human error. I think people forget if you play in a chess tournament, you're sitting at a chessboard for three hours and your brain is like fried by the end. I think professional chess players actually burn more calories than like if you were working out at a spin class. That's insane. Yeah. I think it's like a full day tournament. You you can burn up to like 6000 calories. Just Oh, my God. Yeah. Just sitting sitting there and thinking that's unbelievable. (laughs) It's like Michael Phelps level calorie burning. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, people talk about Bitcoin mining, right? Those computers take up so much energy because they're trying to solve the particular puzzle. And the same thing is happening in chess, right? When you're sitting at a chessboard, you're just like computing all of the different iterations of what someone might play, what you might play. And now, of course, computers are much better than us at this. But that's what you're doing. (laughs) That's amazing. My brother's obsessed with is one of the popular apps like the chess.com app. Does that sound familiar at all? Do you guys yeah, know that? Yeah, chess.com and Lychess are the two that people play on. Yeah, my brother, like, we'll be hanging out, like, watching something, and I'll look over at him, and he'll be on his phone, and he'll just be, like, casually playing chess, like, here and there. Like, he puts it down, he'll go back to it. He's, like, always got games going. He loves it. We gotta play. Yeah, I'll make the intro. <laughs> shoot us an email, anyone. Anyone anyone who's listening, just shoot us an email if you want to play chess uh, with Steph. <laughs> Today, we got, we got a really interesting show today. We're going to go deep on shoes, but not just any shoes. We're talking like really ugly shoes. We're also going to talk through a bunch of stuff that's not in our email today. We're going to go over why Amazon execs are getting a huge pay bump. We're going to be talking about an under-the-radar acquisition in the data viz space that you should probably know about, and a 
kind of crazy war that's raging on the streets of New York City right now between delivery companies and bodegas. But first, let's fill you in on a little news. Okay, Peloton CEO and co-founder John Foley. Now, this is a guy who's been at the company since it launched 10 years ago. He's stepping down. A little context here. A year ago, Peloton was a $50 billion company, but things have been pretty rough lately for the firm. Stocks have tumbled from $160 to a low of $25. So what's going on here? Well, some analysts say that Peloton's flaw was that it built out a cost structure that acted as if COVID was a new normal, but now that gyms are reopening, the company's peddling to stay afloat. They're also cutting 2,800 jobs. That's about 20% of its corporate workforce. And this is not a joke. The severance package includes a one-year subscription to Peloton. Speaking of departures, Peter Thiel is also leaving Facebook's board. He's been a key advisor to Zuck since the early days of the company, and now he wants to focus on politics. Home Depot and Lowe's are gearing up for what they think is going to be a blockbuster spring season. That's historically the time of the year when things really start to pop. You know, the power tools come out, the shed doors swing open, and all those weekend projects we put off all year start to pick back up. What makes this year special? The average home appreciated by 15% in 2021, and it turns out people are more willing to make repairs when their houses are worth more money. And lastly, the biggest microchip deal in history just fell apart. SoftBank's sale of ARM to NVIDIA would have set a new record at $40 billion, but regulators weren't really having it. The Federal Trade Commission sued to block the deal last year, and now it's been called off. Don't cry a river for SoftBank, though. They're planning to take ARM public by next year. And they're also going to hang on to a $1.25 billion down payment that NVIDIA gave them. So moral of the story here, never put down a non-refundable deposit. All right, so let's get into things here. Rob, ugly sneakers have kind of been a thing for a while now. Dad shoes are all over TikTok, and it seems like all the cool kids are rocking a pair of like white filas. But ugly shoes are seeing kind of a ridiculous renaissance. And you looked into this one company in particular that's been profiting from this. Yeah, so this company is called Decker's Outdoor Corporation. And long story short, like they're just one player in the ugly shoe war, right? So back in the day, it was kind of like the New Balance dad shoe that's just like that white sneaker that got like all the love is the original kind of ugly shoe but now there are just so many different options deckers houses a bunch of different brands and kind of like a a bunch of different styles of ugly shoe so you've probably heard of uggs they're the australian boot and slipper brand that really got popular i think in the early 2000s and people are wearing them with jeans making all sorts of crazy fashion decisions with those Mm -hmm. there's Tevas, which are kind of those Velcro-laden sandals that seem very outdoorsy. They were actually originally created by a river guide from the Grand Canyon. And Tevas sales grew 66% last summer. So they're they're growing like crazy. And the new crown jewel for DECA is a company called Hoka. I don't know if either of you guys have heard of Hoka, but they're this French running shoe brand. And their styles are absolutely crazy. Like they just <laughs> pop with color. They're like really big and boxy. And they're now pulling in more sales than Uggs. They, I think sales grew like 47% last quarter. So they're just making an absolute killing for Decker. Wow. Yeah, I'm a, I ordered a pair of Hoka's one time to run in. And I'm embarrassed to say I usually don't care about how things look, but they were just too ugly, man. I had to return them. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny because I feel like 
it's cool to have ugly shoes, but it's not cool to have really ugly shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There's a threshold that you can cross that that is no longer cool. A hundred percent. And I also like I didn't realize that I was such a fan of ugly shoes until I read this article. I own a pair of UGG slippers, and I'm on like my fifth pair of UGG slippers. I love them. They're like yeah. my favorite indoor shoes. And then I I actually owned a pair of Hoka running shoes. I didn't love them, but I own a pair of Hoka recovery slides. They're basically these big, like thick padded Mm. sandals that are freaking amazing. Like it just feels like slipping your foot into a shoe that feels like the other side of the pillow. You know what I mean? It's, It's like so cool and nice and like cushiony. It's a beautiful feeling. I absolutely love them. So I, I am a Hoka fan. And, and we should say Rob's not getting paid by, by Hoka. To yeah, say. I have no connection. <laughs> no <laughs> sponsorships here. I will say I also am an ugly shoe fan. I didn't realize either. I owned, or I used to own Uggs. I've owned Crocs. I've owned Birkenstocks. I've owned pretty much the whole wow. gamut of ugly the shoes. But you know what I thought was really interesting? When I heard we were talking about Crocs, I looked them up and in my head, I was like, Crocs are just this ugly shoe brand, nothing special. They've grown a lot, but it's just, you know, this ugly shoe brand. And what I thought was really cool is, did you guys know they've patented their special foam and they've even reinvented it? And like, that's what makes Crocs so comfortable and why people buy them. No way. Yeah. It started as something called Cross Light, and then they've created a new material called Light Ride. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So do do you know, do they like license it out to other companies or is it just kind of like strictly theirs and that's why their shoes are just so much more comfortable than everybody else's? From what I researched, I don't think they license it. I think it's just what makes Crocs so insanely comfortable. And I also thought their Hmm. origin story was so interesting. They were actually created as boat shoes. Hmm. So they were created and first seen in 2002 at the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show. And they were marketed as these grip-focused soles and waterproof. And and it's just so funny that they've gone from like these boat shoes to now shoes that many millions of people have bought and think are now cool. Yeah. <laughs> High fashion. That's hilarious. Another thing I wasn't aware of until this past Christmas was like, I asked my sister what to get her boyfriend for Christmas because I, I don't really know him that well. And she suggested getting him some charms for his Crocs, like Croc charms. What? Yeah. Gibbets. Gibbets? There's a name for these? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So this this couple, I guess, had bought Crocs in 2005 or 2006, and they bought them for their kids, and they started like building these little charms that go on their kids' Crocs. And that company was called Gibbets, and they were bought by Crocs for $10 million. Oh, my God. That's incredible. Wow. If you guys want to see the craziest ugly shoe have you guys heard of fish flop? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm looking those up right now. <laughs> These went viral like a, a year or two ago, right? And they were... What? They were like all over the place. They're like these ridiculous looking slippers that look like fish. Yeah, like the ugliest possible shoe you could design. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> the, the level that's too ugly that no one actually wants to wear. But apparently they're selling a decent amount online. I checked them out on Jungle <laughs> Scout. And one huh. seller sells $50,000 a month in these... Super Are ugly you serious? That's insane. Uh, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I know, man. You got to switch over to the fish flops economy. That's amazing. So, Rob, um, stepping back to the big picture here, like what can we take away from all this? Like, why are we seeing a renaissance in ugly shoes right now? Yeah, I think there's a few things, a few factors that are at play. So I think one angle is kind of a fashion story. So if you guys know Yeezy, which is Kanye West's fashion brand, 
Yeezy and Balenciaga have both really put a lot of effort into this ugly sneaker and ugly shoe renaissance. And it's kind of had a trickle down effect, I think, on the rest of the industry. I think they've given ugly shoes and ugly sneakers a bit of cultural clout. There's a good quote from the article from a woman named Carolyn Mayer who wrote a book called The Psychology of Fashion. And she says, fashion, like art, likes to question beauty rather than simply aiming for aesthetically pleasing designs. So apparently ugly shoes can be fashionable as well as good looking shoes. So I think like the democratization of fashion is definitely part of it. I think with a lot of these brands, there's kind of identity woven in as well, which I think is a big part of it. Like if you're outdoorsy and you like hiking, you like canoeing, kayaking, whatever, maybe you'll like Tevas. If you're a big runner, but you don't want to buy Nikes, you want to go with something a little bit more indie, maybe you'll buy Hoka's. Mm -hmm. And then I think Crocs and Birkenstocks totally have their own legions of super devoted fans and, and people that wear like swear by their shoes. So I think that the identity is definitely part of it. But you hit on this when we were talking about this, Zach. I think the biggest thing is all of these brands are really focused on comfort. Like all of the shoes that we just mentioned are really comfortable. Uggs, Tevas, Hoka's, Crocs, and Birkenstocks are all just extremely comfortable. And I think there's been a big shift from aesthetics to comfort. You mentioned it in the context of kind of athleisure taking over the world, especially in the context of a pandemic where none of us are going into the office as much anymore. It definitely feels like that's part of it as well. All right. So Steph, I'm going to move to you here. There was a recent acquisition that I don't think it really got too much play, but it caught your eye. Canva, the Australian graphic design firm, recently swooped up a company called Flourish. You want to tell us who they are and why this is important? Yeah. So to your point, I didn't really see many news outlets covering this. I think TechCrunch wrote an article but I didn't even see it at first. A friend of mine sent it to me and was like, hey, this company that you keep talking about was just acquired. And this company Flourish, the reason I've been talking about it so much recently is because they create these really cool moving infographics. I'm sure people have seen them, right? If, if you spend any time on Reddit or Twitter, you've probably seen one of these mm. where basically they show how data has changed over time. Right. And what I find so cool about this is that even though it's a very small one, I think it really was an innovation because think about if we go back to caveman times, you couldn't move the data on your stone wall. But now, since we have computers, you can do that and you can just tell these incredible stories with how data has changed over time. And so Flourish was acquired by Canva. And I was also just really shocked to see how big of a company this was. I thought this was like a tiny firm that had developed this technology. What are we talking? So this company has built over 9.5 million visualizations in its time. It was founded in 2016, and they have over 800,000 customers and 75 million monthly active users. What? That's insane. Wait, what, Steph, how much were they acquired for? Do we have, is it uh, disclosed? Not disclosed, but they did raise a million dollars in funding back in 2016 and 2017. But yeah, no, no data on how much they were acquired for. And only 44 employees. That's got to be pretty awesome for all of them. Yeah, I think like, Zach, you talk about this all the time editorially, but like data storytelling and Steph, you mentioned that those visualizations are hitting the internet like crazy, like TikTok, Reddit, everything. I feel like that's a super savvy acquisition for Canva because it really like it's taking over and kind of how people want to consume information. And Steph, funny story, you were like trying to convince HubSpot to acquire Flourish for a while, weren't you? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I mean, I was seeing these moving infographics absolutely everywhere, like you just said, Rob. And I was like, this is so cool. And mm -hmm. this is something that we could leverage. And 
I did. I told them to, to, <laughs> to purchase it because also, I mean, speaking to, to what you do, Zach, you create so many of our infographics for, for the hustle. And I'm curious to know if you see any data or you have any backing to say basically that these infographics perform better than a typical story. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had a lot of luck with our graphics just, you know, getting to the top of the data is beautiful subreddit. And now that you describe like these flourish animations, you know, you'll see like the market cap of tech companies change over like a 30 year period or something. And these lines like shift and move and they grow exponentially. And I never really put a face to those. But now that I know that they're flourish, um, this is a really cool company. Most of our visuals are static and uh, they're just made in like Photoshop, but there, there are so many dynamic tools coming to the market that really expand access to people who want to integrate data visualizations into their work. You know how people say that a picture is worth a thousand words? I feel like this is the next evolution of that, where, for example, you've, the first step is like describing what a picture looks like. The next mm. step is the picture, which captures those thousand words. And sure. this step is like capturing so much more, capturing like a thousand pictures into a single animation, the same way that instead of a storybook with 30 pages, that has the ability to tell one story, but mm. an animation for 30 seconds has an ability to tell a much more dynamic story. I think the same thing is true with these infographics. It also feels like, I mean, I think this definitely would have been the way of the future anyway, but I feel like I've seen so many of these visualizations in reference to the spread of COVID-19. And it feels like I've it's just completely blown up through the pandemic. You're adding another axis, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're adding the time axis into a data visualization. Well, um, another axis has also been added to in a kind of small economy in New York City here. We're, we're all familiar with bodegas. We love them. They're those little corner stores in neighborhoods where you might go to get a bag of chips in an emergency or maybe some wine or beer. <laughs> But in recent years, we've seen a huge swell of these new delivery service companies with names like GoPuff, Gorillas, Fridge No More, Joker. And what these companies do is they're offering grocery delivery in as little as 10 minutes. And all of these bodegas are arguing that their turf is being infringed on. Right, Rob? Yeah. So this is a really interesting kind of like evolving debate in New York City. And I think... In the future, a lot of other cities in the United States, New York City is kind of the first one that's going through this because instant delivery has really taken over in New York. It's kind of like their first test case, basically. But what these instant delivery companies do for the most part is they will rent out real estate on the first floor of these big buildings in New York, and they'll have these kind of micro fulfillment centers. GoPuff is an exception. So GoPuff, you can actually go in and buy something. But most of these instant delivery companies, they essentially operate these kind of mini warehouses. And a lot of the time, they're putting these mini warehouses in the same neighborhood as bodegas. And what's really, really interesting about that is... Warehouses in New York City are traditionally considered, they're categorized as manufacturing from a zoning perspective. And a lot of these bodegas operate in districts that are only allowing kind of residential or commercial buildings. So they kind of they operate in this gray legal area of zoning laws. Exactly. Okay. So the, it's not entirely clear and New York City officials haven't made a ruling on it yet. The verdict is still kind of out on what they're going to classify them as. But basically, like what these bodega owners are super worried about is obviously venture capitalists are just flooding the sector with capital. So I think between January and October of 2021, 
instant delivery services raised almost $6 billion. And obviously bodegas just have no access to that type of capital. So they're worried that they're just going to be these huge loss leaders, a lot like how ride sharing was in New York City to take market share from cabs. They feel like instant delivery startups are going to do the exact same thing, but for the this kind of essentials grocery shopping space, which bodegas have always kind of been the go-to spot for that in New York City. So it's a really interesting kind of battle that's waging right now. And a lot's going to ride on it, I think. It's, there's a lot of pressure on New York City public officials to figure this out. Yeah, these companies, it, it's kind of fascinating that they maintain their own warehouses. These aren't like last mile delivery services that are outsourcing third-party products. They have their own products in their own warehouses. They're almost like giant bodegas in the middle of the city <laughs> that just have fleets of, of delivery people, right? Right. Have you guys ever actually used any of these instant delivery services? I have not, but I live kind of north of San Diego, and I was actually just thinking, like, of course, they're starting in New York City where everything's so concentrated, but these companies are already losing so much money in those concentrated cities. Do you think they're actually going to be able to expand to places like northern San Diego where... Like, <laughs> It's just like the density isn't there. Right. I totally agree with you. Like suburban sprawl is going to be like kryptonite to these startups, I feel like. And I feel like Amazon's already buying up all the real estate that these startups would ultimately use, like in these kind of expanded cities. Mm. And I could totally see Amazon like moving towards instant delivery. It's just a matter of time. But yeah, that's a really good point, Steph. I don't know like how viable instant delivery actually is outside of a city like New York, where everything is just kind of right there. All right, well, here's another thing that shocked me. Um, Steph, you put this on our radar, but when the volcano recently erupted near Tonga, uh, the nation's only source of internet, which is this like 500-mile, $15 million cable connecting it to the nearby island of Fiji, uh, it basically broke, and it took more than a month to fix it. And there's a really interesting reason why here. So it's actually not fixed yet, but it's on the way to being fixed because... There's only 59 cable-laying vessels, apparently, that have the capability to fix these undersea internet cables, which I just think is so crazy because humans are so incredible at certain things, but we're also so fragile. And I think this is a great example where millions and billions of people rely on these internet cables, but then there are 59 boats that can fix them when they inevitably break and do break. I just thought that was really surprising. And it also just made me question where else in our society are we surprisingly fragile? Like where else are there just like very few things that many people rely on? No doubt. It kind of reminds me of the supply chain issues that we're having right now. Obviously, there's like more trucks than 59 and more warehouses than 59, more ports. But um, it feels like the same kind of scenario where it's like this huge important thing that we're all so reliant on really comes down to such a small group of people and workers that are actually making it happen. Yeah, it reminds me of the semiconductor stories that are going around today where there's many different types of semiconductors, but if we're talking about the absolute most advanced forms, there are only a few companies that can make these. And so that's why people say the semiconductor industry is going to be the next like trade war, or even if you go a layer deeper, so not the companies actually creating the semiconductors, but the companies who create the machines that are sold to those companies, there's even fewer. So ASML, I think, is one of the only companies that can produce this a very particular type of machine. And it's just crazy to think that it's like one company has designed a process to make one machine that is sold to all these semiconductor companies that then creates our electric cars, our phones, our computers, like so many of the things that we rely on. 
It's fascinating. Steph, do you have any idea in digging for this story? So like, how do they lay down cable? Do you, do you know anything about that? Like, do the boats kind of like do it themselves or are there actual workers that are like, <laughs> I, I'm just picturing like divers going deep in like <laughs> cable. And I think that's complete nonsense, but I, I, I'm just curious if you found anything about like how it actually happens. Man, I should have dug deeper, but I didn't. But I, I cannot imagine that people are diving. These, cable, ca- <laughs> these cables are pretty deep, I think. Yeah. And so, and they're super long, right? Because they're connecting countries. And so this would actually be a fascinating Sunday story to, to learn about how these cables are laid. Yeah, we'll have to look into that one. So let's, let's close it out here and, and move into Amazon. Obviously, you know, Amazon gets a lot of attention for the glitz and glamour of its, of its media and e-commerce and cloud service arms. But I don't think a lot of people realize how insane their ad business is. Steph, can you give us a little perspective here? Yeah, so YouTube obviously had a banner quarter that a lot of people were talking about. But then just a few days later, Amazon reported, and their ad business actually makes more money than YouTube. So in the last quarter, they made $9.7 billion. And that's just from their ad business as compared to YouTube, which is $8.6 billion. But here's the thing. Those numbers sound big. But they sound even bigger when you compare them to some of these other very popular tech companies that are also ad run. So uh, Twitter, for example, made $1.1 billion last quarter, Snapchat $1.3 billion, and Pinterest $0.8 billion. So it's pretty crazy, $9.7 billion. So Amazon's ad business is bigger than Twitter, Snap, and Pinterest combined. Exactly. <laughs> Wild. That's insane. So I have a funny anecdote on this. It's probably going down a rabbit hole, but- Back at my, so I worked at HubSpot from 2012 to 2016 in sales. Wait, what? I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I was, I was on the sales side at HubSpot for four years. I started as a BDR and then was an actual rep on, on the sales team. Wow. Yeah. Helped build out a team that was selling HubSpot specifically towards publishers and online media companies. So I've kind of come full circle now working at an actual media company within HubSpot. But back in the day, I was I was kind of helping these publishers utilize inbound marketing and marketing automation to create better advertising products and to drive more subscribers. I actually, I got reached out to on LinkedIn by a recruiter from Amazon who is recruiting for their media sales team. And I had absolutely no idea what this was about. I was like, what, like, what is Amazon media? And I was super happy at HubSpot at the time. So I didn't even take the call. Come to find out it's Amazon's ad business. Like that's what they were recruiting for at the time, which has now become an absolute behemoth. I don't think I was ever long for sales. I don't really have any regrets on that front, but needless to say, it's done pretty well since, since 2016. That's insane. It's really crazy just to think about how many arms Fang has, like as an We all know Facebook for its social platform. We know Apple for selling the iPhone, Amazon for being this logistics company. And then all of those companies have like dozens of other products that they sell. And due to the size of those companies, those like secondary arms are often way bigger than we think. I mean, a lot of people have also overlooked AirPods, which also sell more in revenue compared to a lot of those companies we mentioned, Twitter. Shopify, Spotify, etc. So Fang is just, we all know Fang is Fang and it's large, but it's always surprising when you really make those comparisons. Yeah. If you took the revenue just from AirPods, it'd be bigger than the GDP of 27 countries. <laughs> it's um, crazy, right? right? Guys, I'm just realizing this, but do we need to rename Fang Mang after Facebook changed its name to Meta? <laughs> 
Yes, but yes. no one's no one's actually calling it meta. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, Mang's days will have to wait, I guess. All right, well, let's close it out here. Uh, while we're on Amazon, I think we just have to mention they recently boosted their corporate pay from 160k. They had a cap of 160 thousand dollars for base pay. Uh, they raised it to 350. That's more than double. And uh, you know, part of that might be because of this monstrous success of their ad business we just talked about, but. There's also something else going on here. The tech market is obviously super competitive and these companies are really pulling out all the stops to attract talent in a tight market. Yeah. So this is, I was reading this headline. So this is, they've raised the maximum level of base pay, right? So their, their max that you can make is kind of your base before bonuses and stuff like that was 160 before and now it's 350. Did I read that right? Correct. Yeah. That's, it's like, it's eye opening to see figures like that because you realize just how big the offers are. It's wild. There's definitely the talent war aspect of this and the whole great resignation. But I do wonder, like, I wish I I could have a conversation with Bezos or whoever made this decision. And I wonder if they are thinking long term about a more like barbelled staffing approach. And what I mean by this is they've invested a ton in automation and specifically certain companies like Kiva or Canvas They've bought those automation companies for their warehouses, and it seems like they're moving towards automating out the really simple stuff, right? So the like lower level jobs within those warehouses. And so I wonder if they're actually developing a strategy where they have fewer people who are paid more and then robots instead of many people being paid less. I could totally see that. And I feel like a lot of the complaints about... Amazon's worker conditions and stuff like that come from the warehouses and stuff like that, right? So I, I could totally see them pursuing that stuff. That's that's kind of a scary strategy. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea if it's true, but I was just like, what's their game here? And it may just be we're trying to attract top talent, but I also know that they're investing in automation. And so I wonder if that is the long-term mm. play that they're working towards. Mm, that's an interesting point. And I guess tangentially, this this probably isn't like great PR for Amazon. So Right. Yeah, Zach, didn't we have a story like a few months ago about like delivery drivers for Amazon, like having to pee in bottles, like so that they don't miss deadlines? Like if I'm that guy right. who's been pulling over to pee in a bottle, seeing this bump to 350K, I, I'm probably not very happy about this. Right. Yeah. And Amazon definitely spends on just their brand. In fact, a couple months ago, I saw in Morning Brew, Amazon had bought a spot, an ad spot. And I was surprised, perhaps I shouldn't have been, I was surprised to see that the ad slot was was not a direct response ad. Like it wasn't directing to go buy X, Y, or Z on Amazon or go, you know, be our next AWS customer. It was almost like a press release. Wow. They had bought a quite expensive ad slot for that. I can't remember exactly what it was speaking to, but there was no direct response involved. And so we, we all know how much Amazon spends in lobbyists and things like that. And so they, I don't know exactly how much they're spending on the way that their brand is perceived. But to your point, Zach, upping these wages may actually just net out as being better for their brand in the end. And, and they're willing to invest then. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to the Hustle Daily Show. We are a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. I'm Zachary Crockett. Big thanks to Rob and Steph for joining me today. And shout out to our producers, Darren Clark and Matt Brown for making us sound good. For more on the Hustle's tech and business coverage, head on over to thehustle.co. We'll catch you all tomorrow.